Good morning and welcome. In here where it's nice and dry. I was looking at a weather map and it looks like I'm going to get five inches tonight. So hope you all stay dry and safe today. Um, I'm John. I'm one of the elders here. And uh, I was noticing in the first service I didn't have my notes. And so I pulled out the LCC Paso app and I thought, oh, wait a minute. It's right here. Hey, it had the scripture. It had the notes for the, the sermon. It was great. So anyway, this morning I get to read from the word. Uh, this morning is Acts 11, verses 19, 19 through 30. I'll try to not trip over my own words here. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Bartimaeus to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them to all remain faithful in the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And at Antioch, the di disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the reading of God's word. Praise be to God. As we open the word together and look at the church and how God was moving, I don't know if you reflected last year and, and had a scale on whether or not the hand of the Lord was with you, or if, if you got a Father's Day or Mother's Day card maybe last year and it said, um, you're full of the Holy Spirit and faith. You're a good man, Dad. Was that in your Father's Day card? It wasn't in mine, so I, that's my New Year's resolution. As I got into this passage, I'm like, man, I really feel and sense that the Holy Spirit is truly in this church and, and God's hands on us, guiding us, directing us. And if, you, if you're showing up for the first time, welcome. I get the privilege and humble joy of serving uh, as, a, as a pastor, a lead pastor here, and it, it never ceases to amaze me the struggle and the pain and the hardship that personally we go through and then collectively as the church. Like, no church is without any issue, problem, and, and here we have the mega church of all mega churches, the first one in Jerusalem, and they hear reports and they send Barnabas, and there's so many things we can unpack here. Because it seems like it's just all good, all amazing, and then all these people are here in the gospel who are Jews, which obviously that's like your first 
person to take out to lunch, like, hey, Frank, I know you love Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but dude, Jesus, like, that's the Messiah. You know all these Bible stories. Remember? Yeah, I know, like, that crazy big old white hair lady that told us about Jesus growing up as a kid. Like, that was the Messiah is Jesus. Like, we should believe in him. But the Jews were hard to reach, and so they started going. One of them, you know, was like, hey, I'm going to this Greek over here is some amazing, like, falafel or something, whatever they get at lunch. I'm going to share the gospel with that Greek, that Hellenist guy. That's, he doesn't believe anything. He keeps sleeping around and drinking too much. That guy needs Jesus. And all of the Greeks started coming to know Jesus. And there's a lot of things we need to look at. But first and foremost, Antioch sticks out. Antioch. And the church in Antioch. And backing up a little bit. Um, one of the ways we understand the church is by looking to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, but who came to establish the church. He told Peter, it's on this rock, I'm going to establish my church. And the reason we open God's word is to understand Jesus and God and his mission and his purpose through the church. In John 17, where we get our mission statement as a church, I believe it's the mission statement for the church. Jesus prays for the church. He prays for believers and saying, Father, may they know you, which is salvation, and then sanctify, which is our translated word, grow. And I'm going to be set apart for this growth work, and I'm going to start this growth work. I'm going to do this new thing. And he sets himself apart, sanctifies them for a holy and good and new work. For their sake, he says, I want to sanctify myself. That word sanctify means I'm going to set myself apart for them. I'm going to grow for them growing relationship with God and others, he's giving his self, himself to us. I live for them. This means there's never a time where Jesus is in heaven and says, hey, how's that church doing? That thing, that was like your idea, right? Holy Spirit, like you were the flames and tongues, saved a bunch of people, got them in a room, didn't like each other. It was like kind of as a me, I was there, I guess. Like, how's that going for you? No, Jesus lived, ate, slept, sweated blood for the church. He's intimately, deeply caring for the church. And when we open the Bible, we study Jesus so we can study the church so that we might be a better church, a more unified church that reflects Christ and his holiness and purity. And it's interesting as we look at maybe ending a year, starting a new year, how's the church doing? How's the, how are we doing? How's the church doing in America? Um, well, there's bad news and there's good news. The bad news is um, in 07, about 80% of people said they were Christians. Bad news is in the 90s, that was up to 90%. So from 90s to 2007, lost a number of percent of people that said, I believe in Jesus, or I'm, I'm a Christian. Um, and in the U.S., it's now down currently to 64%. So we're on a steady decline of people who profess to know Jesus. That's the bad news. And everywhere you look, it's all Christianity's in decline. Europe's post-Christian. America's post-Christian. There's no hope. The church is failing. The church is falling. And in large part... You look around and what does the church say? What is the church doing? So often it's against, we're against, here's what we're doing and here's what we're against. And, and so often what we're doing is not at all what Jesus commanded us to do. Because the gospel alone is an offense enough that we're in sin and need a savior. That's offensive enough. But then we go and add to that or confuse it instead of simply say, look at Jesus and what he did for you, and now he's called me to tell you lovingly the truth, that he can change it all. He can transform you because he saved you, but you have to believe in him. Do you believe that he loves you that much? 
And I think there's been a, a different gospel that people believed in. A gospel that America figured out they could export called the prosperity gospel, where you're healthy, you're wealthy if you believe in God, which is really a spinoff of what the Jews believed. If God, if you love God and God loved you, then you'd have health and wealth. And if you didn't, then God didn't love you and he's punishing you. You read Job and that's all his friends were there about the prosperity gospel. Confused why Job wasn't prospering anymore. Obviously, Job did something wrong. So we see there's this idea with the prosperity gospel, while we're on bad news, one of the bad things we believe is that I could be a Christian and have a great relationship without the church. Like my church is in the ocean with the waves, or my church is with the redwoods, or my church is on horseback out in the plains with my cows. That's my church. Interestingly, Jesus never created that environment or picture for us. Uh, and that's certainly not what we read here in, in Acts 11. Um, so while 80% of Americans say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a believer, they also would probably say, yeah, my church is just my living room with the football on, and I have an app. I could listen to Brandon kind of in the background on low. If I want it too loud, i got to hear the announcer. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's what you grew up thinking, but it's interesting because Jesus said no like a builder who finishes his last house or like a painter painting the last portrait or an author writing the last book that he would hope to encapsulate the work, the point, Jesus ends with the church, saying, I gave my life for this. I'm empowering it through my spirit. I saved them through my blood and I've adopted them and unified them through my spirit that they would go and teach the world to obey everything I've commanded them to do, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1, we see this layout where God planned it, Jesus accomplished it, and the Holy Spirit seals it. So there's this very high view of the church all throughout Scripture, especially as Jesus came to accomplish it, and Paul reflects on it later in Ephesians 1. In John 17, Jesus is saying, I sanctified myself. I put myself apart to build, establish this church as my masterpiece, as my final capstone. This is it. There's no plan B can't get rid of it so we can't just say oh the church is a mess i'll find a new one no it's the church and in revelation you can read about it there's actually seven types of churches but only two are legit one of them's being persecuted like crazy and and they're the other is being martyred so you have either persecution or martyrdom in in the in the end times of the church seasonally and the good news is that globally the church is growing 1.3%. So globally the church is going, but all the negativity and all the Pew research focuses just on America as if we're the world, which that's how kind of, unfortunately, honestly, our world Western mindset is. Like, we're the world, we're in decline, therefore the church is in decline. However, 1.3% of the world is actually growing as Christians, prim- primarily Africa, Asia, and Latin America, where if you do a Google search, those countries are also the top uh, increasing persecution countries. So if you read Revelation and you Google persecution or church growth right away, Google's like, yeah, Africa, Asia, and Latin America are increasing their persecution because it's also where the Holy Spirit's blowing up the church and it's growing. So as we look at that in context, and we think of Antioch, which Antioch was in the Roman Empire, and, and that's where the fir- this is where the first time the gospel has been brought to a big city. So what happens when the gospel hits secular, hits city, hits all the problems that cities have? 
We see that Antioch was the capital of Syria, so just north of Israel. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman world, so Rome had two other cities larger than Antioch. Think of it as Chicago of the Roman world, where you see New York and L.A. are larger than Chicago, but Chicago would be the, sec- the third largest. So it was, only, it was about 10, 15, or 20 times the size of Jerusalem. It was far more densely populated than Jerusalem. It was far bigger and far more urban, pluralistic, multi-ethnic, and had every problem in a city, but exponentially greater socially. So when the gospel got there, we see in Acts 11 amazing things happen. And we can bring them all together and unpack them for weeks, but I really want to just put them under the umbrella of the principle. What's the principle that we're to learn for us as the church today and as we embark on this new year and what God's prepared and called us to do? Is this principle even true? So the first question is, what is the principle we're going to learn? Why is it true? And then our application is, how can we respond? So here's the principle. As the gospel comes to the city, contrary to popular belief, the gospel doesn't die, it explodes. So when the gospel is understood, the greater the urbanness, the more the gospel breaks out. So the more densely populated, the more socially, economic, divided, and more problems are there, and there's more ethnic tension, the gospel takes root deeper, faster, and grows better than in the rural kind of sameness ideology, which blows my mind because I grew up Central Coast. It's like we're all the same. We all think the same. Everyone goes to church. Why would you ever play soccer on Sunday, you sacrilegious pagans? We should probably tell you the gospel. Why would you club sports? Ah, I'll go to church. You know, that's why football is on at 1 o'clock because you can do church and watch football. That's God's sport. It's like, wait a minute. Are we? Then you go to the city and you're like, whoa. I didn't even know they had that kind of sin. They like invented and twisted it and turned it upside down. All, all kinds of crazy sin. Like, man, someone should tell us people about Jesus. Anyway, it's four hours north. We're all good. And then COVID hits, and then everyone starts driving and moving here. It's like, whoa, hey, hold on. And then they realize this is st- same, same. So then they start moving east, right? And Texas and Idaho are like, hey, you can move out of California. You should, just not here. Like, leave your stuff. Don't bring it here. And it's like, wait, wait a minute. Can we open our Bibles for just a minute? Just read a couple verses in Acts 11, and all of a sudden, when you go to Austin, Texas, when you go to San Francisco, New York, Chicago, when you go to these cities, look at what the gospel actually does. When you go to these colleges where everyone thinks that's where your your childhood faith goes to die, and your, your secular college philosophy or psychology class actually in Antioch it exploded. So what's the difference? The difference probably isn't the environment. The difference isn't the people had different conditions. The difference is it was a different gospel. See, these people believed a gospel that literally called them to serve and sacrifice their life willingly. And we believe the prosperity gospel that obviously if it feels good, looks good, makes me healthier, wealthier, I'll go with it until it stops. And then I don't want to be with that God anymore because he's not giving me health and wealth. And to fit into this culture, I'll do this and follow these gods. And all of a sudden, we realize maybe we haven't been discipling our kids. Maybe our kids and our grandkids never actually believed the gospel. Maybe you and I need to have a sit down and explain. Maybe you never were explained the true full gospel. Maybe you believed a false gospel. 
that, that you held on to tightly, and the tighter you held on to it, the more you worked, the more you, you felt good, and you were applauded and cheered on for doing good things, and you thought one day God would actually turn and look at you and, good job, you get to go into heaven one day. You did enough. And that's where we see. It's in the Antiochs. It's in these big cities. It's where the economy has failed. It's where these, these political ideologies fail that people start to realize, wait a minute, we voted for this. We, we sweated and bled for this, and it didn't feel good, look good. It didn't actually come through. Maybe Jesus is true. So when Christianity flourished, it wasn't in the small, homogeneous, homogeneous, insulated little communities. It was in the, the, the urban. It was in the cities that were growing. And Christian faith looks pale in the city. So as urbanization has come, and as great cities of the world have arisen, the thought is that these cities today are far different than the cities we've known in the past, much like some people's thought on wine. It's like, well, that was like barely even grape juice. I mean, that was like water with food coloring in it. That wasn't wine. Jesus, it's like, whoa. No, they actually had sin in cities before us. It's, it's a thing. Um, and, and they were way more pluralistic and multi-ethnic cities than we've known in the past is what the thought is, that our cities have more problems than the cities in the past. But in reality... Christianity has not hit its peak and is in decline. Christianity has faced cities with far greater challenges. And when they were, the gospel was introduced in that context, it exploded. So maybe we need to go back to the beginning and look at what their tactic was and what the gospel was they were believing and they were sharing. So when you look at a city and it's sophisticated people and buildings and money and, and I mean, the best explanation and depiction of this is in LA. Um, you're going down the, the bank district and the finance district and the flower district and all of a sudden you get into the, the homeless district they created. So it's Skid Row. They have a whole district of homeless and poverty and they just put them there and, and they have all these different views of morality and sexuality and, and how do you go in there as a Christian? You're like, oh, I'm going to go in and, and fix them and help it as a believer. I know the right way to do it, and I'm going to get in there. But we see the cities filled with communities that have social brokenness, personal brokenness, racism, oppression, poverty, crime, and the city needs continue to grow substantially. And so how does Christianity fit in there? A lot of people now say, oh, well, Christianity is dying and dead, so just get Christianity out and let us plan and, and put forth legislation and let us just have more control over this. But in the reality, Christianity is bound to, to grow, not wane, in these cities. And we see this, this supports this. There's evidence that, you know, maybe you, you, you are sitting there going, well, Pastor, I mean, I have like nieces, nephews, I have friends. Even I doubted and walked away from God in college or a city. And, and you might be saying, no, faith does die in the city. There's, there's personal experience of that. But this passage teaches us the opposite. And we see the Roman Empire was the most urbanized civilization the world had ever seen. And we're only just now catching up to it. So when we think, like I do growing up, it's like, man, once you have Nintendo, now we have PlayStation 5. It's only a few years to have PlayStation 8. Like, no one's had these advances that we have in cities and YouTube. And we have problems that have never been forfeit. Oh, wait, hold on, what? You read history and you realize, wait, Rome conquered the world. They created safe travel. They created safe vacationing and movement, not only for business, but also pleasure. that had never been experienced before. They conquered the most 
civilizations which brought upon them the most challenges, adopting different gods, adopting different viewpoints, social issues, racial issues. And we see several hundred countries in a massive part of the world that was completely conquered and subdued under the Roman Empire that had never been seen before and were just now catching up to it. So historically, as I did research, it wasn't until the 1850s that there were four cities in the whole world that had a million people. And we see that when Rome was at its highest, the biggest, densest, most pluralistic, most troubled cities that had ever arisen that didn't rise again until the 1850s, there were a million people in Rome, and these other cities were not far behind. So a million people in Rome, and then a couple other cities had close to it, and it wasn't until the 1850s that there were four cities in the entire world that had a million people, which blows my mind, because you see antiquity and history, and you're like, how do they have the ingenuity and the architecture skills to get that built the way they did? Which also, as we talked about, those Roman roads is what advanced the gospel because it went from city to city to city on their infrastructure. So we see the biggest cities of the past, before and after the Roman world, were usually homogenous ethnically. They were the same in ideology and thinking. But we see the ethnic diversity also had fierce pluralism, all kinds of religions and they had enormous social problems, lots and lots of poverty, sickness, and because there was no situation, it all led to urban decay. But when the gospel was understood, the greater the urban context, the more the gospel broke out faster and stronger. And so when people say, my Christianity fell apart in college or the city in this urban pluralistic environment with all these personal problems, the real question Maybe you never heard the gospel. Maybe you never believed in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and fully grasped what the gospel demands of you now. Because I don't know how many times I've heard over the years when Christians go into a city or they go on a trip in, 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 in a city around the world on a missions trip and they realize, I thought that this country, I thought Mexico, I thought the city needed me, but really I needed the city. God needed to do something in my heart to humble me, to break me, through this service context, in this environment. I can't believe how the city showed me what the gospel was, the power of the gospel. I had no idea I was asleep spiritually until I came to the city, is what people have said. And Bob Ingalls, a mentor of mine and longtime friend, and he went to the city in L.A., and he saw the poverty and the problems in Watts right after the Rodney King riots, and he's like, you know what? This small little white guy about this tall and about that thick of like no muscle, just bone, maybe some skin on there, rode his bicycle from Indiana. Like that's like, he was in that kind of shape and ended up in LA and married his wife, raised his kids and the worst, I mean, right? Every time you turn on the news and it's like a shooting in LA, like that's his house right there, like right, a couple blocks. That's where he grew up, every shooting, all the USC right there um, and uh, the Watts, riots, and, and they actually established a church that's in our church network, Christian Missionary Alliance in Watts, um, and it's cool, because as a kid, I was going down to the city, cleaning up these random buildings in the city, going, man, this is great, wonder what we're doing, and then years later, it's like, oh, I'm like a fellow pastor in a network with that pastor, and I know a little bit of the history and the context, but Bob was instrumental in getting rural, 
older brother type, I'm staying close to God's word, all thinking the same, down into the city for God to create that environment to break my heart for the needs of the people in the city and to see how the gospel does truly have no bounds and needs to grow in the city. And it was crazy hearing Bob's stories where he's driving to work one day and sees this pimp beating up this girl and gets in front of him, stands down this big old you know, black guy with like knives and guns and he's this tall, small little white guy and he's like, I don't know what I said or what I did, but I had enough like street cred that the gangs respected me and, and this guy respected me enough to calm down. It's like, whoa, I don't, yeah, that's, I mean, I, I hope I'd stop. I don't know what I'd say and if you would get out. Like I'd probably stop with 911 on the, hey, I'm calling 911, like stop, don't, don't hurt her, I don't know. But the urban, the city, reveals the gospel's power when you're in that environment. And when the gospel is in your hand and in your heart, it's like a, a weak flashlight sometimes it feels like. And if everyone else is kind of shining a flashlight, it's like, cool. But when you're in the darkness and the depraved parts of the city and you have a little bit of light, even that little bit will shine up and be a blaze that everyone will notice. And, and they don't understand it. They might not even believe it fully, but they can tell a difference is there. And they're like, yeah, we're going to respect that guy and what he's doing. Because we, you know, it's interesting how, how Jesus said, hey, Watch out for the kids and, and have, if any of you messes with the kid and keeps them from knowing the truth, it'd be better for you to have a millstone around your neck and put in the sea. And that's kind of how Bill, or Bob had a bunch of street cred because he'd help the families and help the kids. And no matter who they were, the hardest criminals were like, hey, t- take care of the kids in our community. So we see the gospel takes root. And why is this principle true? That the gospel in the urban settings isn't where the gospel goes to die, but it goes to thrive. So why is that principle true? We see that Christians were completely astounded that the gospel could do this because they were in Jerusalem. It says Barnabas stayed in Jerusalem and other people kind of went out and shared the gospel with other Jews and then they ended up sharing with Greeks and all of a sudden, boom, a bunch of people are coming to know Christ and Barnabas gets sent and we see that the, the first thing is the gospel in the city it reveals the gospel's power to transform individual lives. So in verse 19, it said, they were continuing at first when the missionaries went to Antioch to preach to the Jews, but then it says in verse 20, they also started preaching to the Greeks, and huge numbers began to come, and twice it says a great number. The Lord's hand was on them, and a great number was coming. It's true that on Pentecost, lots of people became Christians, and since then, they hadn't really seen anything like this. And for... This to stand out in the city again, it was amazing. And it's interesting that this is not an ethnic thing. Up until then, Christian missionaries were going to Jews to help them meet Jesus, who they were reading the word. And now here's the word in flesh, the word fulfilled. But they went and preached not just to religious people, but to irreligious people. So they figured at first, hey, you've been hearing these Bible stories growing up. Here's Jesus the one that every story is whispering Jesus' name. Every story is pointing to Jesus, and here he is. And now they started preaching to irreligious people. So when they started preaching to pagans, to their shock, these people were, as it were, humanly speaking, more open to the gospel than religious ones. They'd never seen that kind of thing before. Because up until this point, it was people kind of seeking God. That's why at Pentecost, everyone was in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to the God they wanted to appease from their sins. So the moment... They're like, you already kind of know you're a sinner and you're looking for a savior, satisfier of sin. It's Jesus. He's going to save you, satisfy your sin. They're like, ah, this is awesome. My wife's going to love that I'm going to tell her we're going to cut down an area of our budget. We don't have to budget for 
for sacrifices anymore. We'll save like thousand dollars. We don't have to kill an ox. We can actually like start a business with all our straight sheep. This is great. And I'm saved. Like that's how it was for Pentecost. But here, these are Greek people. These aren't any, there's no indication they're seeking God. And here's the reason why Jew and Greek is an ethnic thing, but Jew and Greek also represent religious and irreligious people. In Romans 1 and 2, Paul says, look at the Greek, look at the Gentile, look how they live, look at their debauchery, they're lost. Then he turns to the Jew and says, look at their morality, they're lost too. That's a very difficult thing to say to come to a church and say, hey, I know you go to Bible study, I know you're here pretty much on time at 10.30 for worship service, you're lost unless you know Jesus. Attending church, becoming a member, even serving does not save. And if you just white knuckle and try harder, that's going to make you more hardened because God isn't going to give you what you want because you're doing what he wants. He wants you to believe in him. He wants that relationship with you. He wants the intimacy with you. And then he's going to call you to do things, to be honest, that you don't want to do. He's like, this is awesome. You don't want to serve on a Saturday morning early in the morning. But I'm going to ask you to do this on a Saturday morning when you don't want to do it. But I'm going to give you the strength to do it. I'm going to change your hard heart and make it soft. And for Bob in Indiana, it's like, you don't want to go to the city, but I'm going to take you to the city. And I'm going to take you to the hardest part in the hardest season LA is going through, and I'm going to put you right smack dab in the middle of it, and you're going to raise your kids there. Talk about a ministry in LA, but raising your kids in LA, it's like schools, sports, like that's a challenge. Problem after problem. And you're in the middle of it. And we see Luke 15 that we'll get into in, in a couple weeks highlights that, where the prodigal son story has a father with two sons, and the younger son says, give me your money, dad. I want to go to Antioch. I want to go to the city and experience all that money can buy, but it won't satisfy. And the older son stays home. The religious one says, I'm going to stay close to the father working on the farm because there's no wild, crazy parties in a, in a dairy farm. I'm going to stay close to dad and do what's right. But at the end, we see he ends up angry and miserable because he's with the dad outside the party because the dad is not doing what the older son wanted the dad to do. And that's where as religious people, Jesus is saying, I'm not, this isn't religion. This is a relationship. When you understand my heart, when the Holy Spirit fills you with my love, you're going to start to love other people that you didn't used to love. They're trying to be their own master, their own, and bring about their own salvation, but they're doing it in unconventional ways. The reason the younger brother went to Antioch was vastly more open to the gospel at the end was because he realized what he was looking for never satisfied. While the older brothers, who the, they were preaching to first, being the Jews, they were against it because they thought they already had God and God wasn't doing what they wanted or thought he would do. So the gospel critiques both religion and irreligion. It critiques the younger brothers who are in Antioch or college living for themselves, and it critiques the older brothers who think they can earn their salvation by doing the good and right things, culturally, morally, or biblically. And the gospel is new, and it's this paradigm busting. And it's interesting because it's people in the cities that believe this. Most of all, when a younger brother's life falls apart, when an irreligious person, a person living for pleasure, Having moved away from God, when your life falls apart, you know you're away from God, and you know the truth. And Jesus says, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Come believe. Jesus says, all who are weary and heavy burdened, come to me and I'll give you rest. This is the city life that Jesus 
Every time Jesus got near the city, he's crying. God tells Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh to save them. God's heart is for the people in the city who are lost and have no hope. When someone tries to talk to you about the gospel as an older brother, a religious person, you say, well, what are you talking to me for about grace or sin? Don't tell me that. Don't tell me I need God. I have God. He's just not giving me the things I want is the older brother's response. So second, we see the city reveals the power of the gospel to transform relationships. This is huge. I did a little research, and when Antioch was built, it was built by a guy named, named Seleucus. He was one of Alexander the Great's generals, and he named it Antioch after his dad, Antiochus. So Antioch's named after the builder's dad, and he built this huge wall around the people to protect the city from outsiders, but he knew that the city was going to be unique and it was going to be full of multi-ethnic people, and it was in Syria, which is north of um, Jerusalem, and there's Romans and Greeks there, and Jews, and there's Africans, lots of Africans, and there was a lot of social economic challenges, and so there was at least if not more than 18 ethnic quarters, and each quarter was walled off to separate them from another ethnic quarter. So when you're in and out and they they put pickles on your burger, which that's like the sin never should be committed, they mess up your order or they short you a cheeseburger and you have like 18 people because you took a couple families out and you're like, dude, I'm short like five cheeseburgers, come on. And there's an ethnic tension. Guess what? You're good because thankfully... They built the city with 18 quadrants. So you just ran and hid in your quadrants, all walled off, no harm, no foul. If they didn't have that, it'd be the whole city and it'd be like the Watts riots all over again. But thankfully, they thought of it. Every race, every culture that thought they were superior than another, they had these quadrants walled off and secluded. When Barnabas got there, all these people started coming to Christ and all these people started worshiping together. All these people started climbing over the walls and tearing walls down, and all of a sudden they started this one church unified under one name, Jesus, that never had happened before. And you see in Acts 13.1, you look at their names of the five leaders, and they represent three continents, four different racial groups. They were the elders or teachers. And what was going on was so radical in the city, in the urban context, that the world didn't understand. And that's why, that's why they called the followers of Jesus Christians in Antioch. Because it was so revolutionary, so countercultural, they completely flipped the script on how the city was built. And they're like, we don't need these walls to protect us. We have God. And he's unified us under one name, Jesus, and we're going to worship together. Suddenly, for the first time, they began to realize there was an experience of God so profound It was bringing people together from cross-cultural, cross-socioeconomic barriers. I mean, you read, when Paul went to Philippi, here's like a business owner, woman, here's slave owners, and they're slaves, and they're all worshiping together. Talk about how awkward that'd be. You know, you just got into it with your slave, and you're in church, and it's like, hey, you should love one another and respect your master, and masters love your slaves and care for them and treat them fairly. It's like, oh, man. I gotta go talk to them after this. Ah, like that got to the heart of it. And Barnabas comes up and it's astounding. The reason everyone was so perplexed by this, probably the reason why the church was growing was not just the multi-ethnic, multi-racial bringing down the barriers, new fellowship, 
was the result of the preaching of the gospel. It probably was the reason the gospel was believed. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what gospel do we believe and what gospel are we sharing? Because if we believe the same gospel, then why are our cities and why is our house and why is our neighborhood not experiencing similar results? If Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail and stand against the offense of this gospel, of this church, then maybe we need to look back and go, okay, what gospel am I believing? And is the gospel influencing how I behave? Is God's love that controlled and moved them the same love that's controlling and moving me and flowing through me to those around me? And do they have to figure out and reason with the evidence of this transformation like it transformed them individually and relationally? And so we see that Christians, in that context of that super urbanness, um, one more thought as we're kind of wrapping up here, and this is crazy to think about. Rome was 300 people per acre. I live on a half acre. That's a lot of people on my little half acre. Like, that's insane to think about. There's no high rises, like, there's no apartment complexes, there's no projects. Like, it's legit 300 people per acre, like, crammed in. And the density of Antioch was something like 200 people per acre. So imagine COVID, 200 people per acre. Imagine flu, imagine cold, imagine sickness, and, and the response that the Christians took when everyone shunned their own, shunned their family, shunned their racial, shunned their cultural, and the Christians were the only ones that said, come on in, we'll care for you. Come on in, we'll, 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 we'll bandage that. Come on in, leper. Come on in, lame. Come on in, maimed. Come on in, mute. Come on in, sick. And the world took notice and said, whoa. They kept their doors open, they brought them in. They, they didn't run and they didn't shudder in fear because they knew when, when they took their last breath, there was eternity waiting for them with God, their creator. And so Christians cared, not just for their own poor, not just for the, their own, but other people's poor. They didn't care just for their kids, they cared for other people's kids. They didn't care just for their family, but for the orphans and the widows. And they didn't just care for their own sick, they cared for the world's sick. And for the first time, the gospel gave something that no other religion could give. It's the assurance that when we took our last breath, there was hope we would be with God forever. And if you're a religious person, you can't live with that assurance because you never know if what you're living up to is going to be good enough. And if you're a secular person, you can't live with assurance either because you never know you're living it up. There's always one more high or one more party or one more vacation or one more post someone posted on Instagram to make you feel like a failure. So whether you're religious or irreligious, you'll never have assurance. It's only with Jesus you have that peace and you have that hope. And besides that, Christians alone are the only followers of Christ have the only reason that God is different than any other gods. Every other religion has like a ladder we have to try and earn your way up and appease God. And as we celebrated Christmas, we worship a God who came down to us. You remember that years ago, there was a plane that crashed in, into the Potomac icy river, and this guy dove down and rescued person after person until finally he dove down and he died. That's the God we have who dove down into our mess and said, I'm going to save you, I'm going to save you, I'm going to save you, and I have to give my life to save you. But only Jesus rose out of the grave and was like, hey, the party's getting started, let's go. 
actually, I'm going to heaven, that's my place to rule and reign, but you have to go tell the whole world about me, and most of you are going to die. My spirit's in you. Let's go. And with fear and trembling, they went, but they went. And that's the church. How do we respond to this principle? Since we know it's true, we respond like Barnabas. I'll just mention two things here in closing. First, Barnabas wasn't scattered. He stayed at his church in Jerusalem. He stayed and he was faithful and he was known by the leaders as someone they could trust. And so when they had these rumors and these reports of crazy things happening in Antioch, they're like, whoa, this is nuts. Like, we're in the mega church. We're in the safe environment. Barnabas, go check it out. So Barnabas' real name was actually, um, kind of looks like um, Jose's, but it's um, Josias. And the guys in the church were like, you, yeah, you're, forget that name. Um, your name is Barnabas because you're so encouraging. You're like the son of encouragement. You're just always positive and encouraging. So he goes, um, and, and it was the same thing that all these missionaries left and went around and, and some went to Antioch, but Barnabas stayed and was faithful to his calling until that leaders said, hey, you need to go. And it's like when Abraham w- was spoken time and God said I want to save the world through you Abraham and Abraham's like this sounds great when do we start where do we start how's this work and God says you got to leave your house your family your friends and you're just going to go and you're never really going to settle down you're always going to be on the move Um, and Jesus of course was the ultimate minority who became flesh among us and let himself be scattered for us and so giving us the example of serving others even to the point of death for the better of others. And secondly, we see that Barnabas served. One of the most amazing things to me about Barnabas was his attitude toward the city. He came in from the outside. He lived there with with Paul for a year and did ministry. They knew how to stay, but when it was time to go, they went and they fully dived in. They weren't outside up on the hill in lavish luxury. They came into the city and let the city be that training ground, not only for them, but also for the people in the city. You see how everybody became a Christian? You see what it says? What a chance Barnabas had with all these followers. It's like the perfect pyramid scheme. Only he had Jesus, and everyone just got led to Jesus by Barnabas. Perfect time to build his own megachurch, where Barnabas is the pastor. Hey, you guys need to pay for my fancy gold-plated chariots. I need a whole Louis Vuitton wardrobe because I'm your pastor. I'm Barnabas. Instead, Barnabas is like, dude, there's so many believers. I need help. I'm going to go get Paul. And Paul's going to be kind of their pastor. And I'm just going to encourage Paul. And we're going to build this church up. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. Which Barnabas stayed in his church. And then Barnabas served the needs of the church faithfully. So how do we respond? Because in in reality, like I said, I, I, I see the Central Coast and the five cities in AG, pretty much everything north of Santa Maria to like San Miguel is like our city. And, and it's amazing how this church has been strategically located with people from Parkfield and people from Margarita and even Grover Beach driving into this building. See, this building's nothing. Like we can't even keep rain out of a window in a tin. When it rains, everything gets soaked. It's like, Lord, you, it's about the people. This building's late. We got a stage donated to us. It's amazing. We get resources, but... It's about people sharing the hope of the gospel with other people. 
And how amazing it is that God's called us here to focus on that mission so we could go do the work he's prepared us to do and serve this city this week. When I took a, a, a group of students down to Mexico, I was pumped because I've done that for years. And then it got super scary and, and, and harsh and it wasn't really going to work out. So I said, hey, L.A., like I've done trips there as a student and I'm like 22, so I know everything and I'll, it'll be safe. Trust me with your kids, parents. And I didn't realize why it was like a problem. Like I didn't know why parents would be concerned. So the, the elders and pastors said, we'll, we'll let you do this trip to L.A. I'm, I'm not excited about it, but we'll let you do it. Just take some like adults with you. And this guy, take this guy. I was like, okay, I'll take him, whatever. Like, I'm, why are you concerned? I know what to do. I'm 22. You're freaking out. And uh, so I asked this guy who's a lawyer, and I'm like, well, that will help us out. Like, if I ever make a mistake, it's good to know a lawyer, like, in our county and also in L.A. So sure, come along. He's done these mission trips before. So I'm like, perfect. Like, a super solid, he'll be like a Barnabas, super knowledgeable. Turns out, he's like, dude, I'm just a warm body. Like, I was kind of told to come, keep an eye on you. Um, but I don't, I'm not excited about L.A. either. Like, I, I love to drive through L.A., drive over L.A. We go through L.A. to get to Mexico. Like, that's where the tacos are in the cool missions, house building. I don't know about this L.A. thing. So right away, we hit the ground, and this creepy guy comes out of nowhere, and I'm like, oh, yeah, creepy guy. It's L.A. It's what happens, right? And he's like, whoa, like, alarm, like, code red, alert goes. He's, like, bodying position, protecting these girls. And, and I'm like, sweet, he's actually engaged. This is awesome, like, I feel safer, I have a co-laborer, it's not all on me. Um, at the end of the trip, we're circled up and everyone's kind of giving feedback, highs and lows, and how God was at work in their life, and, and this guy didn't say a word the whole trip. And at the end of it, he says, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pretty big-time lawyer. I knew he was a big-time lawyer, he didn't actually say that, but he's like, hey, I'm a lawyer in San Luis, and, and my office is a couple blocks away from the courthouse where I work, and so I, I'm constantly walking on the streets back and forth. And ever since I can remember, I would walk by the homeless. I would, I would look the other way, I would cross the street to avoid them, and it wasn't until this trip to this city God broke my heart, and I realized these are people. These are God's people that are hurting. And so, so the ruralness that we have is kind of that older brother-ish, I think. And once we get into the city and see, okay, I see how people can fall into these problems. I see how the pain really can debilitate you. I have more compassion now. And it wasn't until that trip to that city with us that that older gentleman, lawyer, successful, and everyone would respect him and be like, dude, you got it together. But inwardly, he was like, I didn't love like God loved me. I didn't know how to love like God loved me until this trip. And literally, I was like, okay, can we do this whole thing again next year, God? Because that was the price of admission. Like, that was worth it. That was awesome what you did there, God. But that's what God did here in Antioch, just on a greater scale. And that's what God's inviting us to be a part of as we go into the city and serve him and bring the hope of the gospel to those who are hopeless. So as we close... The city is what turned Bob into a better father and his wife into a better mother. The city is what turned that lawyer into one whose heart broke for the things that break God's heart. And when we look at the city, is it just a place to drive around or drive through or is it a place that we pray for? And if we engage with our city and go, okay, 
the soccer field, the football field, the basketball court, that's an intentional way I can be involved in my in, in bringing the hope of the gospel. And my neighbor, even though he might ask you to do things you maybe you don't want to do, are you going to look for ways to be a good neighbor and to bring the hope of the gospel and lay it before him and say, I'm going to love you like you've never been loved before because I've been loved like I couldn't even dare think, hope, or imagine. So if you're here and you're going, man, that's amazing. I never really thought the gospel could stand up against secular society, but actually it not only stood up, it transformed it relationally and individually. How is it transforming my life? Maybe for the first time you're seeing you need Jesus to transform your life. And, and you need Jesus to, to start that work in you and maybe step up and serve in, in your church here like Barnabas in different ways. So maybe you're a non-believer, irreligious, going, hey, I need Jesus for the first time. Maybe you're religious, you believed in Jesus, but you just believed in the Bible and tried to do it and realized you can't. Believe in Jesus and his work on the cross, that he took the pain and punishment for your sin. And let us know so we can walk with you through that and help you grow. And for those of us believers, maybe it's a time we pray and go, okay, God, what are you calling me to do? And I'm gonna come up in a minute and, and close this after we take communion. So there's elements around the room that we passed out.